Let's try that again. Good morning and Merry Christmas. I hope you are well. Uh, my name is Wes. I know I've met and am familiar with most of you. If you're here for the first time, uh, for some reason, they let me get on the platform every now and then and share a little bit with you. And uh, so I'm excited about today. I'm excited about this season. Um, I want to start off with this. We all have things that we hear sometimes that cause a reaction for us. There are things that um, make noise or uh, make some sort of sound that creates a response from us. Uh, for many, maybe it's an alarm clock. I actually said alarm clock the other day in front of my kids and they said, what's an alarm clock, dad? And I was like, what? And they're like, I, I know what an alarm is, what's an alarm clock? And I was like, oh yeah, you don't have those anymore because everybody uses their phone. So you have an alarm app. Um, we had alarm clocks, but when it goes off, it creates a response. For some of you, you hit the snooze 12 times, debating on whether or not you should quit your job. For others, you hit it the first time and you get up and you get your day started. For others, there may be sounds like loud eaters, people who chew noisily that, that create a response for you. Um, when that happens and I'm around, I'm triggered. Now that's not your problem, that's my problem. I have the problem, I have the, the issue with that, so you just keep eating the way you eat. Don't let me make you feel guilty. But we have things we hear sometimes that cause a reaction or cause a response. I've noticed recently that um, there's a new sound in my life that causes a response, and it's the Ring app. Some of you have that. There's a good chance that we may hear that sometime in the next few minutes. It's that wind chime sound, which means somebody's at your front door. If you don't have the Ring app yet, you might be a little bit lost, but you get a notification on your phone when there's movement at your door or if somebody pushes your doorbell. And that response can be good, it can be bad. It's one of the things, I, I actually enjoy it at times um, as we've had that for the last few months. My boys will show up home from school and I won't be home, but I'll get to say, hey, what's up guys? Or I'll get to scare them with a creepy voice. Um, I have learned the significance of the relationship my wife has with Amazon Prime. Um, and listen, I get it. I totally get it. She will give me orders and it takes me weeks, sometimes months. Amazon Prime, worst case scenario, two days. Sometimes as quick as an hour. I mean, it's crazy. Um, she's got a significant relationship with them. Uh, but it's not always good. You know, one of the things that's interesting is I never cared a whole lot during the day about who was at my door or who wasn't at my door. But now every time that thing goes off and I look at the camera at my front door and I don't see anybody, there's a little bit of an anxiety that begins to creep in because I think, oh my gosh, did they already get inside before I could see them? Did they go around the back because they know I'm not home? Or there's somebody there and I'm not home and I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know them. What are they trying to do? And immediately, I don't know if you're like this, but my mind always goes worst case scenario. And so I think, man, I got to hide my kids, hide my wife, something bad's about to happen. Um, it's just interesting, the response that it creates. When I say something like Merry Christmas, it creates a response for different people in different ways. Some of you, you are all in all Christmas all year. I mean, you listen to Christmas music in June, September, March. You love Christmas. You love peppermint mochas. You love Elf on a Shelf. And you will watch Hallmark movies every day the entire month of December. For others, you're like, man, I, you know, Christmas is Christmas, but I could probably do without it. You know, the reality is, Wes, is you just said Merry Christmas, and it reminded me that I haven't got my spouse a Christmas gift yet, so now I'm a little bit stressed, and I'm not listening to you because I'm shopping for what I'm gonna get him or her. Um, for others, you're like, oh, the family's about to be here. The cousins are gonna be here. They're gonna wreck my house. All their little kids are gonna wreck the house. Uh, your 85-year-old aunt who's been divorced 18 times is gonna show up with her new boyfriend, and they love PDA, and so you're just like, my goodness, this is overwhelming. Different things create different responses for all of us. And so as we are in this Christmas season, maybe it's 
a not so perfect Christmas season. Maybe it is the perfect Christmas season, but I think there's a response that's appropriate for every single one of us, no matter where we are in life. And so I wanna look at a quick portion of the Christmas story this morning coming out of Matthew chapter one. And we're gonna start in verse 18 and pick up with the story of Mary and Joseph. Look what it says in verse 18. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Now let's pause right there, because it's significant that we understand what this means. Because I think we've always kind of had this kind of simple understanding that Mary and Joseph were engaged to be married, which was true, but in this day and time, in this culture, there was a little bit more significance to this word betrothed. It's not something that we use a lot, but basically what probably happened is something along the lines of this. Uh, Joseph was probably hanging out one day, um, older teenage boy, and he saw Mary and he said, man, she is so fine, I gotta find out who she is, I gotta get her number, we gotta Snapchat. And so he went home to his mom and dad, and he said, hey, mom, dad, I met this girl, her name's Mary, and she is amazing, and I think that I am interested in a little bit more of a serious relationship. And so his parents would have talked to her parents, and then they would have started this supervised courtship, this supervised dating relationship. All the dads in the room are like, I'm in favor of that again. But then they would have continued to um, enjoy and participate in this courtship, and then eventually at some point, Joseph decided that he wanted to spend the rest of his life with Mary, so he would have told his parents, hey mom, hey dad, listen, I think this is the one, I wanna spend the rest of my life with her. And so again, the parents would go to her parents, and they together would go to the city officials, and they would say, our son and our daughter have decided they wanna spend the rest of their life together, and they would step into this covenant commitment agreement that was binding legally, to be married for the rest of their life. And the the difference between marriage and being betrothed though was two specific things. First, the guy and the girl would continue to live with their parents for exactly a year as they anticipated the wedding day. They would also not participate in any physical intimacy for that one year period. So this was a significant commitment. This was important. There was a lot of anticipation for the big day. And so this is what we find out about Mary and Joseph. And so while they're betrothed, it says before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now this is getting awkward real fast. Joseph has been taking cold showers for 12 months and then he gets a text message from Mary and she says, there's a bun in the oven. And he's like, what the what? Like what what is happening here? And he probably responds with, "Are, are you serious? Who's the daddy? And she responds with, well, an angel told me it's from God. And in that moment, Joseph probably had a thought like, I think I might be betrothed to the biggest meth head in all of Galilee. Like, what is going on with, like, she has lost her mind. He's frustrated, he's confused in this moment. He's not sure what he's supposed to do. But then in verse 19, we find out, it says, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now that's confusing when we read that if we're thinking about this as an engagement in the United States of America in 2019. But when we understand it in the context of the Jewish culture back in this day, we recognize that there was a divorce that had to take place for them to no longer be legally committed to each other. And so Joseph has made up his mind. He has decided that he is going to quietly divorce her. 
Now, he could have gone a lot of different directions, and I'm just gonna be real, and some of you guys are probably with me in this, but if, if you were fully committed, you were waiting for the day for your future spouse, and you had been doing everything the right way, and then you find out that she's with child, you're probably gonna be not just heartbroken, you're gonna be frustrated. I mean, if it was me, I'm going over to Mary's house, and I am knocking on the door, and when she comes to the door, I'm like, Mary, what in the world are you thinking? I mean, was this not good enough for you? I mean, come on. You know what, this is what, Mary, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna go on Mari Povich, and we're gonna Jerry Springer this thing and find out who the daddy is. I mean, I think sometimes when we read these stories in the Bible, we begin to dehumanize the story. We begin to dehumanize the people we're reading about. But in this moment of unexpected circumstances in Joseph and Mary's life, he had a choice to make but I believe that he was probably heartbroken, he was devastated, he felt like he had been betrayed, even though he had done everything the right way up to that point. And you know, at Christmas time, I think there's many of us in this room today that could probably relate in some way or another to what Joseph was feeling. Because Christmas just has this tendency to take what we're feeling and make it feel a little bit worse. Maybe we've experienced loss this year. Maybe this is gonna be the first Christmas after a significant change or shift in the family. Maybe this is gonna be a Christmas where there was a job loss this year and so there's not gonna be the same provisions that there were last year or the year before when it comes to Christmas and you're feeling that frustration. You're feeling maybe some sadness, disappointments. And in that moment, just like Joseph, there's a response that we make. And we all are gonna respond in some way or another, but this morning I want us to look at what Joseph does and maybe consider what the adequate, adequate response would be to Christmas, no matter what the circumstance is. Whether it's been the perfect year, the best year that you've ever experienced, or you're stepping into a Christmas season where it's not been what you hoped it would be. It's been pretty unexpected and you're really pretty frustrated or overwhelmed or discouraged. Look how Joseph begins to, to carry on in verse 20. It says, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. It's important for us to, to recognize that. He says, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So Joseph, in a time of being heartbroken, devastated, frustrated by what's going on in his life, God begins to speak to him in a dream. And it's almost as if God is saying to Joseph, hey Joseph, listen, I know that nobody else is gonna understand this. I know that you don't even completely understand this. This doesn't make sense to you. And so you're afraid of what people are gonna think. You're afraid of what's going to happen. You're afraid of what this is gonna look like if you begin to trust me. He's saying, Joseph, I know that you probably believe because of the culture that you live in that the best thing for you to do is to leave Mary behind. But he's saying, do not fear. He's saying, don't let the feeling that you're experiencing right now dictate what you're going to do. Instead, he shows us the first response that we could take this Christmas. He's saying, well, maybe you should consider pushing past your feeling with action. Push past feelings with action. You know, Joseph had a choice to make. 
He had to decide who he was going to trust. Was he gonna trust himself and what he felt and what he felt like or maybe believed in the moment because of the influence of his culture or the influence of what he was feeling? Was he gonna make a decision based on that or was he gonna make a decision based on what God was calling him to do? In a time when he was frustrated, confused, overwhelmed, sad, it was the not so perfect Christmas for Joseph. You know, we struggle with this because there are times where God speaks to us And he's speaking into our lives in a time where things are not going as we expected that they would go. There's been a change of plans. You know, I think Joseph probably had a good plan for his life. I mean, he had met the woman of his dreams. He had met his trophy wife. He was like, man, this is gonna be amazing. This is gonna be awesome. He was a carpenter. He was successful. They were gonna get married and they were gonna be the next Chip and Joanna Gaines. I mean, they were gonna be the ones that kicked off HGTV. And yet all of a sudden, something changes. All of a sudden, his plans have changed. You know, we have a tendency, I think even as Jesus followers, to have a plan for our life. And we begin to think, I, God, I, just, I wanna just graduate from high school. I wanna, I wanna go to college or I wanna get the right job or find the right field and, and make the right amount of money. I wanna meet the right person. I wanna get married. I wanna raise a family. I wanna be successful. I wanna raise my kids up, send them off, them do great, them be successful, continue to work, retire one day and live in peace and, and just live a great life. God, if you could just help me accomplish all those things, that would be amazing. And it's almost as if we allow God to just kind of ride alongside of us as our own personal assistant to assist us in our plans. But it's interesting as I continue to try to live out this relationship with Jesus in my life, oftentimes I think what God does is he takes my plans, he goes, those are great plans, Wes. I got other plans and my plans are greater. My plans are better for you. My plans are good and that's what he begins to do in the life of Joseph. You know, God has a unique way of using ordinary people to do extraordinary things. You see, this wasn't just about Joseph. It wasn't just about Mary. God wanted to do something supernatural so that he would be seen through the life of Joseph, through the life of Mary. God recognized that humanity was broken. Humanity was flawed. He knew that we couldn't even live up to the standard that we would even create for ourselves, much less the commandments that he had set out for us to live by. And the result of that was us continually experiencing chaos, hurt, frustration, shame, regrets. And so God, in his perfect timing, in a time of disappointment, chaos, discouragement, confusion for Joseph, he steps onto the scene and he sends Jesus because he knew you and I weren't okay. And he didn't just send Jesus so that we could remember and celebrate him twice a year at Christmas and Easter. He sent Jesus so that we could anchor our lives to him. You know, it's interesting in Joseph's story, God didn't change his circumstances immediately. But Joseph chooses to act regardless of a change in his circumstances. And you know, as we begin to do that and we begin to push past our feelings with action when he's calling us to move, when he's calling us to take that next right step, he begins to change something in us. He begins to change our hearts. Scripture promises that. You see, I think there's a tendency, and we have to be really careful that we begin to just kind of hear this this morning, even to think, man, that's that's great, or it kind of almost begins to just feel like a, a fairy tale or a once upon a time moment. 
You know, my wife and I took our boys to Disney World a couple of months ago, and I had never been to Disney and uh, really never had a desire to go because I'm not a huge fan of amusement parks. The only amusement parks I'd ever experienced were like the, the really cheap carnivals that, that show up sometimes or Six Flags, and they just weren't my thing. And so got to Disney, and immediately um, it blew my mind because they're amazing at everything. Number one, it's the cleanest place on the planet. Forget the magical part. It's the cleanest place on the planet. I remember we were walking down this path and this little girl about 10, 15 yards in front of us spilled a bag of Doritos. And before we even got there, this guy in like a ghillie suit jumped out of the bushes with a dustpan and a broom. He is sweeping it up and it is clean. It's like, what is wrong with you people? I mean, they're the happiest people in the world. You can't make them mad. I tried and I failed. It was like my challenge the last two days, like I'm gonna do something. I've gotta, I just, I wanna see someone stop smiling. That's it, just, just stop smiling, but I couldn't do it. They're very good at what they do. They also create some incredibly powerful stories. I mean, you and I can sit down and watch a cartoon about a boy's toy box and weep at the end. And I don't cry, I, you know, I, like my allergies will mess me up, but I don't cry, y'all. But man, that, that movie messes me up. Some of you have watched Beauty and the Beast. And so you stand in front of the mirror and you think to yourself, man, even the beast found somebody. There's a bell out there for me today and today is the day that I'm going to find her. And we kind of live in this fairy tale. We watch shows like The Little Mermaid and all the dudes when we were little kids, we thought Ariel was the greatest thing. We all had a crush on her but she wanted to be a human so that she could experience love and live happily ever after with the one that she loved. And I think we have to be careful because if we just stop right here and we just kind of listen to the Christmas story, we begin to put the Christmas story underneath the same umbrella of myths and fairy tales and it begins to make no significant difference in our lives. What God is telling Joseph is different. There's substance to it. Look how it continues on. Verse 22, it says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. I think it's important for us to recognize that not only did Joseph get called to push past his feelings with action, but he began to remember God's promises. God begins to fulfill. And so in this next step, he says, remember God's promises. What God does, he begins to, to remind Joseph of promises that God had made prior. You know, Joseph was a Jewish man, and he probably had a really solid understanding of all of the Old Testament. And so he knew promise after promise after promise after promise that God had spoken to his people over generations. All the way back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve in the garden were deceived by the enemy to believe that they would be better off without God, that, that God was holding out on them, that if they would just trust their own feelings, trust what they believed to be good for themselves, then life would be better for themselves. And so they, they trusted the enemy, they believed, they fell for his deception, and sin entered the world. Look what it says in Genesis chapter three. I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is God speaking to the enemy, speaking to the serpent. serpent. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now that's an interesting verse, but here's what God's doing. In the first moment of shame and regret, where somebody chose to walk away from his goodness, he steps onto the scene, he begins to set a plan in motion. He begins to make a promise and he says, I will crush your head. He's talking about Jesus. 
Jesus was gonna show up one day and he was gonna crush the head of the evil one. The evil one might bruise his heel. When Jesus went to the cross, there was, there was a pain, there was something that was inflicted, but it was necessary. And when Jesus went to the cross, he crushed, crushed the head of the serpent. There's a promise that's being set into place. Joseph would have remembered this. In Genesis chapter 12, later, God is speaking to Abraham. And he says this, he says, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now that's a powerful verse because here's what's happening. God is speaking to Abraham. He's saying, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth through you, through your offspring. Jesus was gonna come from the lineage of Abraham. And he's continuing to make a promise, even though the people were choosing to live in their best interest, choosing to not trust God. And God's saying, hey, I got you. I'm gonna do something. There's a promise. And I don't just make promises, I keep my promises. You continue on, you continue to read through the Old Testament, you get to Isaiah chapter seven, and there's another prophecy. There's prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. In Isaiah seven, it says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. I think we've heard that before. You know, I think when God spoke this to Joseph in his dream, Joseph immediately thought to himself, oh, this is familiar. I remember this promise. And now this promise is coming true. The the miracle has happened. You know, when my kids were born, there was nothing super profound or miraculous about their birth. There were not cameras and news crews running into the delivery room saying, oh my gosh, what has happened? Oh, I can't believe this happened. Everybody knew how it happened. Everybody knew why that there was a biological explanation. That wasn't the case. And Joseph recognized that God was at work. God was doing something supernatural. He was doing something miraculous, even though it wasn't good in Joseph's life in this moment. The circumstances were not what he hoped they would be. But he began to remember and reflect on the promises, promise after promise after promise from God. And I believe he began to think to himself, if it's not good, then God's not done. And God has a plan. God has made promises and God will keep his promises. And it added another layer of confidence to what Joseph was experiencing and what ultimately Joseph was going to do. I mean, God has told him, hey, you're gonna be the daddy. You're gonna be the daddy of the Messiah who has been promised for generations. I mean, Joseph had never changed a diaper in his life and all of a sudden he's gonna have to change the diaper of God in the flesh. I mean, talk about a conscience adjustment. No pressure. So what does Joseph do? Look at verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph did just as God said. He pushed back against his feelings with action with confidence as he remembered God's promises. Now, I think there's a third layer to this, and I think we see this in Galatians chapter four, Paul's recount of the Christmas story. Let's jump to Galatians chapter four real quick. It says this, but when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law. Now, Paul first is starting off, he's talking about, he's talking about the arrival of Jesus at the first Christmas. And he says that Jesus arrived to provide freedom because every single one of us were in bondage. We were enslaved to the sin that we were born with in our lives. 
And so what Paul is saying, he's saying, hey, Jesus arrived on the scene so that you would no longer have to be enslaved to the sin that you and I have at the core of who we are. And he's saying, you get to live in freedom. It's the same thing that God told Joseph in the dream. He said that Jesus would arrive to free the people from their sins. But Paul goes a step further because he wants us to understand something else that's super significant for us. He says, so that he could adopt us as his very own children. That word adoption, it's like he uses this word picture so that we really understand the dynamic of what happened on that first Christmas. God put something into motion that would change us forever. It would change our perspective. It would change our understanding. And when we get this, it makes a radical adjustment in our life. It's one thing to push past our feelings. It's another thing to remember God's promises. But when we begin to understand that we have been adopted as his very own children, that's a game changer. It begins to change the way we respond. Our reactions begin to change. What Paul is wanting us to see as we remember the arrival of Jesus is that Jesus did not just show up to offer forgiveness. But when Jesus showed up, it was God's way of saying, I want to be involved. I want to be your father. I want to be your daddy, not so that I can judge you, so that I can wreck your life, so that I can dictate your life, but because I want to be involved. I am interested in what you're interested in. I am interested in you. I care about you. I love you. My love is incredibly strong for you. Paul wants us to see this. He wants us to understand this. This is critical in the Christmas season when it's a not so perfect Christmas. Because oftentimes for many of us, we begin to think there's no way God's interested in my life. If God was interested in my life, I wouldn't be going through the things that I'm going through. Oftentimes the dysfunction or the devastation that we've experienced in our life is a result of some of the dysfunction we've experienced with our earthly fathers. And so when we see adopted as his very own children, to think that I am a son of God or a daughter of God is conflicting for some of us because the relationship we had with our earthly father was not what it was intended to be. For some of us, we grew up with a never satisfied dad. He was concerned with your image. He was concerned with your success. He was concerned with your roster spot. He wanted you to do more and you felt like you had to do more and more and more in order to achieve and earn any kind of worth in your father's eyes. You thought to yourself, if I just do more, then maybe I'll be worth something. And the reality of that is as we begin to live with that mindset of that's what a father is, it begins to influence the way we see God as father. And we begin to think to ourselves, man, if I was better, then maybe God would love me more and I wouldn't be going through what I'm going through. Or we begin to think to ourselves, I'm not sure I'm enough. I'm not sure that I'm worthy of the love that God would maybe have for me. And we find ourselves in a really frustrating, discouraging place. Our self-image begins to take a blow. And for others, maybe that wasn't the father you grew up with, but maybe you grew up with the time bomb dad. You never knew when to expect it. You just knew that, that it could happen at any moment. He was the one that would use his voice. He would use his, his verbal threats. He would, he would try to, to push you back. And so you lived life walking on eggshells. It was scary. It was hurtful. And it became impossible for you to really love him because you hated the way that you and him react, responded to each other. And so when you think about a heavenly father, you begin to think to yourself, I'm not sure that I can love you because I'm not sure that you would even be happy with me. I'm supposed to trust you with my life. I'm not sure I know how to do that because I'm not sure what this relationship between a father 
and his children is even supposed to look like. We become like Pearl Harbor who set up way back in the day after it was attacked, they set up an insane radar system that would detect anyone coming in from more than 5,000 miles away. Always on guard, always on alert, and if anything bad happens to us, we just think, it's God, he's after me. Maybe for others, it was the emotionally distant father. He was always there, he was always present, there was never an abandonment, there was never abuse, but there just seemed to be that disconnect. There was never a lot of conversation about how he felt about you or how he felt about anything. And so you kind of lived your life in the same way, pushing people out, not letting people in, not letting your spouse in, not letting your kids in, just disconnected. You know, there's something in every single one of us that we wanna hear, I love you, son. I love you, daughter. I love you, little girl. There's something in us that we wanna hear, I'm proud of you. You're good. I love you. And when we grow up not hearing that, we begin to think about God as a heavenly father. We just can't help but to think about a God as a father, but he's just distant. He's distant, he's not interested, he doesn't really care about the real things going on in my life. For others, maybe it was just the absent father. And this, the sad thing about this is this, this represents more than 40% of the children in the United States today. And listen, I'm not saying any of this to make us feel bad or make us feel pressed down. The reality is is I want us to see that God is a father that's different. God is a father that is perfect. He's not absent. He's not disconnected. He's not uninterested in what's going on in our lives. He wants to be present. He wants to be involved and he he cares about the things that you and I care about. You know, it's interesting that some of the world's most famous atheists all have one thing in common. They grew up in a fatherless home. Karl Marx, Sigmund Freud, Bertrand Russell, Madeline Murray O'Hare, the list goes on and on and on. There's a frustration because they didn't have the influence of a healthy father in their life and we begin to portray God in the same way. Paul wants us to understand this morning. He wants us to remember who we are. So our third response is simply just to remember who you are. That there's a God in heaven who's not distant and disconnected and uninterested. But he did everything through Jesus to show you that he loves you, that he's interested in you, that he wants to be involved in every area of your life. He chose you. That's what's so beautiful about the picture of adoption. It wasn't like you had to love the child. He chose you. He chose me. He chose us. And when we recognize that and we understand that, not through the eyes of the way we see our, our earthly fathers, but when we begin to understand our heavenly father, it begins to change us. It changes the way that we pray. We don't pray in a way of negotiating our way out of doing some of the things that we've done or trying to bail ourselves out of a situation that we found, we found ourselves in or begging for forgiveness. Our prayers turn into just a response of who God is in our life. God, you're amazing, you're incredible, thank you for loving me. God, I'm overwhelmed with life right now and I know that you care about me and so would you just do what only you can do in my life? I know you're there. It changes, it changes the way we respond to temptation because when we know that God is involved, we know that his presence is with us and so it begins to dictate the way we make decisions in situations where we're tempted to go one way or another. It changes the way we see other people. It changes the way we love because we've experienced his love. It changes the way we respond to failure our own failure and the failure of those around us because we understand grace. 
from a perfect father. This begins to shape the way we respond to Christmas. I'll close with this last story. When I was in high school, uh, me and some friends of mine, we were helping a guy out on a farm plant his crops. Um, it was part of a fundraiser for our church, and so me and about 10 other guys, we were out there just putting plants in the ground. I mean, real, ex- real exhilarating stuff. And uh, there wasn't a lot of water out in West Texas unless you pumped it up from underground, and then they would store them in these huge dirt ponds. And so we were taking our lunch break. Um, we didn't have a lot of, there weren't lakes, there weren't rivers, there was nowhere to do like water recreation. So we're hanging out by this big irrigation pond one afternoon. And as we're sitting there eating our lunch, as normal teenage boys, we start thinking about doing things that just don't make any sense. And so the first question was, somebody said, hey, you guys think we can swim across this? And of course, guys trying to outdo everybody else, were like, oh yeah, that's easy. And so a couple of my buddies decided they were gonna start swimming across this dirt pond. And so they start swimming, they get about halfway. I look at my friend, Victor, and I say, hey man, you wanna go? And he's like, yeah. So we start swimming. We get about halfway and I look over at Victor and he's got a look of panic on his face. I was like, you good, bro? He goes, I can't go any further. And I was like, don't play. And he goes, uh, no, I'm, I'm, and all of a sudden he starts going under and all of a sudden in a moment of scarcity, there was desperation. And when there's desperation, there's a tendency for destruction. And the panic began to ensue. And we started to struggle with each other in the water. I was trying to pull him back up. He was bigger than me. I was trying to spin him around so that I could get behind him. He pulled me down underwater. I remember seeing the sun get smaller and the water get colder. And in that moment, I thought, man, this is it. I'm about to lose my life. We're both about to die. And finally, I came back up out of the water and I started yelling at my friends and they're starting to swim out to us. I mean, it was a, a crazy, chaotic scene. My friends finally got to me right as they're getting to us. I let go of Victor. I'm holding on to him by his mullet <laughs> behind his head, trying to keep him above the water. And I start swimming to the shore and I barely make it to, to, the, to the shore. And my, my two friends, one of them is a lifeguard. He swims and takes Victor back to the shore and he was exhausted. Victor survived. It ended up not being that big of a deal. Um, we weren't swim buddies any longer, but <laughs> what happened? What went wrong? In a moment of scarcity, there was desperation. And where there's desperation, there's a tendency for destruction. And for some of us, we spend our lives trying to fill a void because there's scarcity in our life. And there's nothing that satisfies that scarcity other than Jesus himself. But we try to fill that void with everything else. We try to fill it with accomplishments. We try to fill it with substance abuse. We try to fill it with relationships, with money, with success, with jobs. We try to fill it with all these other things. We run around in desperation to fill the void, only finding ourselves in places of destruction. Destruction after destruction after destruction. At Christmas time, we think, oh, this is the season. Tis the season to be jolly. Fa la 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 la. <laughs> and so we get all hyped up and we get all excited and we expect great things for Christmas. And then we get to January, the doom and gloom of January. And we think, man, Christmas just didn't turn out the way I hoped it would turn out. And then we get to November of next year and we hit repeat over and over and over, trying to satisfy this void. We're like Victor. We panic, we become frantic, we exhaust ourselves trying to rescue ourselves from some of the circumstances and situations we find ourselves in. You know when it was possible to rescue Victor that day? Was when he was finally willing to give up control. And for some of us, in our not so perfect Christmases, we simply just need to give up control 
because there's a father who is crazy about you, whose ways are better than our ways, whose promises are true. He is a promise maker and a promise keeper. And for some of us this Christmas, the step we need to take is just to simply say, God, I give you control. I'm exhausted. I'm tired. I'm discouraged. Here's my life. Do with it what you want to because your ways are better than my ways. Can we pray? I know some of you are sitting there this morning and you're thinking, man, I'm overwhelmed, I'm frustrated, I'm disappointed, and Christmas just seems to make it even worse. And maybe you're sitting there and even after hearing all this, you're still just not sure what you're supposed to do. Can I just give you a little nudge this morning to say, just trust Jesus. Just trust Jesus. And you're like, Wes, I don't know what that even looks like. You just keep showing up here. You begin to surround yourself with people that are here, that love Jesus, that love you, that trust Jesus, and you just focus on doing that next right thing. Today, Jesus, I give you control of my life. And then tomorrow, say, Jesus, today I give you my life. And as you begin to trust him, as you begin to take steps with him, pushing aside the feelings and taking action with where he's calling you to take action, you'll develop a trust And you'll finally find yourself in a place where you're willing to give your whole life because you recognize and you realize that Jesus' ways are better than your ways. He did everything necessary so that you could have a relationship with him and new life today. God, we thank you for today. God, we thank you for the opportunity we have to be in this place, to worship you, to celebrate Christmas, but especially for the hope that we find in your word, that you did everything necessary to come after us, not so that we could just experience heaven one day, but so that we could experience new life today. And God, I know right now in this room, there are people that are sitting here that are experiencing a not so perfect Christmas. But God, I pray that it would be the perfect Christmas for you to do a miracle in their life as they trust you. So God, give them courage, give us courage, give us boldness to just take the next right step, to do the next right thing. God, we pray for Christmas Eve tomorrow. Christmas Eve on Tuesday, would you fill this room with people? And as this room is filled with people, would you do a work that only you can do in the life of every single person that shows up in this place? Give us boldness to invite those people. Give us boldness to talk about it. Give us boldness to be everything you've called us to be. We love you. We trust you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.